Good morning. We are, of course, continuing church history today. Um, last week we looked at the rise of the Russian Orthodox Church and a lot of its history. Um, I learned a lot from that. hope you guys did too. So today we are um, still in sort of the turn of the millennium around the, the year 1000, 1100, 1200. And we're going to look now at the Western Church again, Western Europe. Uh, the rise of universities, and with it, the uh, group called the uh, Scholastic Theologians, uh, and their ideas, which have been sort of lumped together and are called Scholasticism, um, which basically just the schoolmen and the, the school pastors, if you will. Um, primarily, of course, that in Catholic Europe uh, in the 11 and 1200s. Um, so starting off, we'll, we'll look at universities, we'll talk about um, some of the theology that was developed by the scholastics, and then we'll uh, look at a few of these individuals who were more influential in their lives and their contributions. So universities, uh, the idea for them actually came from the Muslim world. Um, their, their influence is still seen today, in fact, um, when we... We write our numbers down. We don't write with Roman numerals. We write with Arabic numerals. And that comes from Arabic universities, Muslim universities, and how they influenced the Western universities that got passed on to us today. Um, a lot of their ideas and developments in medicine, science, math, and philosophy were also passed down. Uh, I know we all love algebra. That came from the Arabics. We have them to thank for that. Um, uh, if you remember when we were looking at the Third Crusade, we talked about the uh, Muslim general. His name was Saladin, and I mentioned that he really wasn't a man of war. He valued culture and science and technology, and it was that attitude that prevailed in this time period in the Muslim world and led to them in the 900s especially developing universities and advancing in knowledge. Uh, and so this idea of the university then spread from there into Western Europe, um, where they had schools. Generally, the schools were tied to the churches, the cathedrals, maybe the abbeys and monasteries, um, but they were just, they were mostly schools for raising up what you might say choir boys, you know, teaching young boys to become clergy eventually. That was the purpose of the schools, and it didn't really deviate much from that. Yeah, 900s for the, the earliest universities coming into Europe. Uh, and so the first two in Europe were actually in uh, Bologna. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Bologna and not Bologna, but I could be wrong. <laughs> Maybe it's Bologna in northern Italy. <laughs> uh, and there was another one in Paris. Uh, and these two sort of were the models for future universities. Uh, and they were very different from each other. I'm going to say Bologna from now on because I think I got that wrong. The university in Bologna <laughs> um, was a confederation of student groups um, that assembled together. Uh, their focus really was on different trades, the different guilds at the time. Um, and so the student groups were the authority of the university, and they hired and fired the teachers uh, and the staff, they set the prices for attendance, uh, and they controlled the policies of the university there. 
Uh, in Paris, it was the other way around, and what we're more familiar with, which is where the faculty actually controls the university, and they're the ones who set the fees, decide on the policies, and students have to apply to them. Um, and so, for the most part, the universities in Europe, early ones, modeled after one of those two systems. And um, obviously, the Paris one is much more popular today as what we what we see over here. Uh, and so, over the next few hundred years, um, many new universities arose following these two. Uh, by the 1500s, there were over 80 universities in Western Europe. Um, some of them had very specific, narrow focuses on what they taught and um, I mean, we see that today. Certain universities specialize in medicine or things like that, uh, where others sort of covered the what were considered the four main categories at the time, um, and those were theology, law, medicine, and art. Um, and so, a, a very well-rounded university taught all, each of those four categories. Uh, the average student started at the university at what age? Take a guess. Fourteen. Fifteen, yeah. So, you guys ready to head to university? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. <clears throat> Can't afford it. Yeah. Uh, the school year, you're going to love this too, was generally uh, all year long, basically 11 months of schooling. They had a little bit of time off for Christmas, and they took a little time off for Easter. But otherwise, it was a year-round school system. Um, of course, Printing press hadn't been invented yet, so there weren't a lot of books. Um, generally, just the instructor had a book of some sort. Yes? Well, Christmas and Easter are good reasons for time off. They are good reasons for time off, yes. Yeah. So, uh, no books. The teacher had a book. The teacher would instruct from the book. Um, advantage of that, if you were a student, hey, no reading assignment, but you had to take really good notes in the lectures because that's that's what you had to work with for your study and then um, prepping for elect tests and things. Um, aside from the sort of the common lecture format uh, that we're familiar with, another teaching method was called disputation, um, which was kind of like a guided public debate. Uh, it wasn't really a debate, um, but it, it generally involved a teacher and one of their students. Uh, and so the teacher would present some kind of a situation uh, in which there might be uh, a dilemma, multiple sides to an argument that could be presented, and the teacher would actually uh, explain that there were two sides to this argument, and then the student's responsibility was to go into both sides of the argument. So play the advocate for one and the devil's advocate, as we call it, for other, and actually try to defend both sides of the argument while the teacher questioned them on this defense. Um, the purpose wasn't so much to solve the dilemma as it was to teach the student how to consider both sides, reason through things. Of course, they didn't have a book, so they were having to do this defending from their knowledge, from what they had already learned in class. Um, so it was a good way to get people thinking logically, learning how to apply and use and debate what they had learned in their studies. Um, I think it'd be a great thing to see come back and in some extent today. so um, They did also have public debates, um, in which case somebody would actually present a case that they were going to defend, 
and it was sort of an open-ended, if you've seen the meme where the guy's sitting there in the banner and it says, you know, I believe in this, convince me otherwise, or something like that. It was kind of that kind of thing. Somebody would, you know, I'm presenting my case for this, and anybody who wants to can engage me and debate me on this topic. Um, and so that also happened at this time period. Um, typically, students were in school for about five to six years, uh, at which case they graduated um, and were awarded the degree of a bachelor. Uh, of course, the students were all boys, men, uh, and that's why we call it a bachelor's degree. You're now a young single man who's finished school, you're a bachelor, you have your degree. Uh, they did have advanced degrees, both master's and doctorate level, um, but those took a much longer period of time to get. Um, for example, a doctorate in theology generally took 14 years of school to acquire. Um, you needed at least a master's, as is still pretty common in order to teach at universities. Still not much of a school system for them yet, unless you went to the higher education. Yeah. Uh, I think, by and large, they were still following the trades of of their fathers and that kind of thing. How is it able to go? Uh, the church was. These were still all tied to various universities. Um, there was, you know, the university in Paris was tied to Notre Dame Cathedral, things like that. So the church was funding university. So the elite kids would like to go to school, um, church. <laughs> <laughs> And so with the, the growth of the university and one of the topics at university being theology, well, kind of the main topic at this point, um, it, it began to shift where, where, where the influential center of doctrine was um, out from the monasteries, because we've seen a lot of, you know, some great speaker at a monastery and their ideas become uh, what's commonly accepted. Now it's coming out of the universities and these... Uh, these teacher theologians. Um, and so the, the pursuit of, uh, of theology goes from being primarily a spiritual discipline to now very much so an intellectual um, idea. Um, and so on one hand, this is beneficial to theology because uh, it sort of opens up a lot more interest and energy into fleshing out more of our doctrines. We're going to see systematic theology get developed through this. Um, so good things come out of it, but on the other hand, it also tends to uh, make people separate their theology, their understanding of God, from their actual spiritual life, their practices, um, and then theology gets treated as an academic pursuit rather than you know, actually growing in your knowledge of God and your relationship with him. Um, so that was one of the negative aspects of this. Um, looking at some of the theology that developed, uh, it's called scholastic theology or scholasticism, um, and they had a particular style. Um, they tended to be very focused on trying to find a union between faith and reason. Um, they wanted to, again, it was all intellectual, so they wanted to be able to explain logically what what faith was about rather than have it just be, you know, blind faith, something we accept and don't understand. Uh, and in, in doing so, they also wanted to discover the extents to which God could be known himself through logic, outside of just his revelation in the word, but, but could we 
uh, especially in philosophy, could we actually reason the existence of God? This was something they, they really tried to do at this point. Um, and then if reason failed to fully explain something, um, did the, the conclusions of reason at least not contradict what scripture presented? Um, these were all different things that they were looking at in their, in their studies. Uh, and then, of course, if there did appear to be a contradiction, how do we reconcile that? How do we handle, um, in our time, how do we handle the Big Bang Theory with the creation theory? And, you know, people present evidence for millions of years old stuff. And, um, they weren't dealing with that at the time, but they had their own things, uh, a lot of it coming from philosophy. Uh, and so they tended to come to many different conclusions, um, but they did have in common the fact that they tended to ask the same types of questions and were driven by the same goals. Um, one of their focuses, as I just mentioned, was on developing a complete systematic theology. Um, and so this means focusing on every area of theology, putting it all to the tests of reason and, and biblical study in order to fully flesh it out, but also to understand how everything in each branch of theology fits together to form a, a whole part, a, a big picture, if you will, of God. Um, and so there's going to be some of the earliest systematic theologies that get developed through this. Um, and then the third focus uh, was on philosophy, uh, especially in the Middle Ages, the philosophy of Aristotle became popular again. Uh, this happened largely because uh, Aristotle was a Greek um, and Catholic Europe was Latin, um, but Aristotle's stuff got translated at this time from Greek into Arabic by the Muslims. The Muslims wanted to know about his philosophy and then from Arabic, they were able to translate it into Latin, and it became popular in Western Europe. Uh, and so scholastic theologians, um, part of their goals were to seek, seek all truth, the, whether it was scriptural truth, anything that they thought could be known truth, and this included in the area of philosophy. Uh, and so they really dove into Aristotle's philosophies looking for truth. Uh, and in doing so, this is where we actually see a lot of division between theologians, because um, Aristotle's teachings aren't scripture. Uh, and, and it's easy to come to a lot of different conclusions and accept and reject pieces of it. Um, and so in the teachings of Aristotle, we see uh, the Catholic Europe discover a, a philosophical explanation for everything um, that had been developed uh, fully apart from the Bible. So, so we have biblical explanation for everything, and now completely separate for that, Aristotle had an explanation. And, and they liked that they had an alternate view of reality, if you will, to compare and contrast to what Scripture presented and try to find a harmony there. Um, and especially because, as I mentioned, they liked logic, they liked reason, and that's what Aristotle's stuff was based off of, was coming to, you know, tracing a thought train until you came to a logical conclusion. Um, his ideas frequently contradicted what was taught in Scripture, um, and so they were often um, battled by the church, um, 
you know, where we had the scholastics kind of diving into them, we had the church proper saying, no, you know, we need to ban Aristotle's teachings and things. Uh, and initially that, that started to work and his stuff sort of fell by the wayside. Um, in fact, even some people embracing his stuff were labeled as heretics and got run out of the church. Um, one of the reasons was because Middle Ages Catholic Christianity tended to be influenced by the older teachings of Plato um, as a philosopher, which were um, because St. Augustine had been uh, pretty interested in Plato, and that had influenced his writings, which influenced most of the Middle Ages church. Um, and so with Aristotle's teaching, um, the church you know, tried to suppress Aristotle's stuff because they liked Plato's ideas and they didn't always see eye to eye either. Um, but over time, the, the balance of what was popular shifted from Plato's stuff to Aristotle's despite the church trying to uh, suppress it. Uh, and with this shift to Aristotle's philosophy, um, the church went from trying to ban it to trying to figure out how to reconcile his philosophy with the scripture um, in the same type of way that we try to reconcile, you know, what modern science teaches or, or comes up with for theories with what we see in scripture, for example, uh, with creation. So that sort of sums up what these guys focused on um, in a large part. And I want to look at some specific individuals now, and we'll get a little more detail in a couple areas from this. Um, so the first person we're looking at um, was named Ansem of Canterbury. He lived from AD 11, uh, sorry, 1033 to 1109. Um, his uh, contributions to scholastic theology, a couple of them, uh, one was his work in which he tried to prove the existence of God purely through reason. Um, I explained that was one of their goals. Ansem was one of the first guys to come up with uh, an explanation in that regard, and it's still often used in uh, in debate today. Ansem, A-N-S-E-L-M. I think the L is kind of silent. Anselm. Uh, he's from Canterbury. Ansem of Canterbury. Yeah. Uh, and his second work was that he developed uh, at least a partial systematic theology. He focused on the doctrine of the atonement and uh, fleshed out that doctrine really well. Um, so looking at his two contributions there, his argument for the existence of God, um, to kind of put it in a quick nutshell for you guys, is that um, somewhere some being must be the most perfect being. You know, some people are more perfect than others. Nobody's perfect. But he said, well, somebody somewhere must be the most perfect, whether they're completely perfect or not, um, and so that most perfect person must be God, because if God doesn't exist, he wouldn't be the most perfect being, but there has to be a most perfect being, so it has to be God. <laughs> you track that? Got it. All right. So there's a God. We're all agreed on that. Thanks, Ansem. <laughs> um, similar types of thinking uh, have been presented by other philosophers. Uh, another one I've heard more recently kind of goes the same line of thinking, but instead of focusing on the most perfect, it's looking at uh, there must be a most powerful being. Whoever's the most powerful 
being in the universe must be God because they're more powerful than anyone else. Therefore, there's a God. So, Kind of the weird pursuit that these guys are trying to explain God in this way. Um, and then, as I mentioned, his one of his really influential works was his systematic theology of the doctrine of atonement. Um, in it, he rejected the idea that was pretty popular in the church at that time, which is that Christ's death on the cross uh, was, the purpose of it was to pay a ransom to Satan to free sinners from Satan's possession. Ansem argued that no, Satan actually has no claim on the human race. Um, he loves to see us fall, but that doesn't make us belong to him. Rather, Christ's ransom was paid to God the Father because man's sin is an affront to God's holiness. So the human race, through our sin, owes God uh, compensation for our affront to his holiness, and, and that's the debt that only Christ could pay. He said that our sin was infinitely heinous, and our debt to God, therefore, was also infinite. And so only Christ, being God, could offer a compensation of infinite value to pay that debt. Uh, his ideas set the framework for uh, the modern Western church and our understanding of the doctrine of atonement. It uh, also gives us some insight into what the, the scholastic theologians accomplished. They didn't just want to stop with the idea that Christ died for our sins and move on. They wanted to know why did Christ die? Why did it have to be Christ? Who was he paying the debt to? You know, They were asking these kinds of questions is what the scholastic theologians were uh, accomplishing. So next one we're going to look at, uh, his name was Peter Abelard. Uh, he lived from 1079 to 1142. Uh, he was from Brittany in northern France, and he studied at the school at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Uh, it wasn't a university quite yet when he was there, um, but it was a school, or at least in its early stages. Uh, while he was there, he, uh, he initially clashed with the headmaster of the school, um, didn't like what the headmaster was teaching, and so Peter began to teach his own lectures, uh, which became more popular than the, the, what the headmaster was teaching. And so before long, he was the head of the school, um, and furthermore, he had gained a reputation for being a genius. Um, he was a very, very smart man in the way he taught, and in, in his ability to understand and explain, and he was just, he was recognized as very intelligent. Um, unfortunately, as he was rising in prominence academically, he was also falling into sin, uh, one of the more famous uh, affairs of the Middle Ages. He met a young woman named Haloy, or Haloise, I don't know how to pronounce French names. Uh, she was only 17, which was less than half of Peter's age at this point. Uh, he became infatuated with her. And so he made arrangements to become her private tutor, which quickly turned into an affair. And, of course, that affair got discovered because she became pregnant. Uh, when the girl's father found out about it, he was so outraged that he hired some thugs to break into Peter's house at night and forcibly castrate him. No more affairs for Peter. <clears throat> he learned a very hard lesson, uh, stepped down from his position at the school, and joined a monastery. <laughs> What else can you do when you're now a eunuch, right? 
he joined the Benedictine Monastery at uh, St. Denis, just north of Paris, and um, Haloy, his mistress, went to um, a convent and became a nun. So they went their separate ways. And, um, that was sort of Peter's check on his, his rise to fame. Um, one of his most influential works as a theologian was then written shortly after he became a monk. Uh, he was in this monastery there. Uh, and the title of his work is Yes and No. Well, it was in Latin, but it translates to Yes and No. Uh, and so in it, he compiles 158 different theological topics in which there seems to be contradictions, either directly in Scripture itself or between what Scripture says and what the church commonly teaches or even just between commonly taught things in the church. He, he was putting together a list of um, hot topics, if you will, in theology. Um, the purpose of the book wasn't necessarily to present a solution to all these topics, but merely to draw attention to them uh, to encourage uh, theologians to discuss and debate these topics and, and try to reconcile them for themselves. Um, and so... Kind of a neat, I don't know, study guide, if you will, that he put together um, without without an answer sheet. <laughs> um, during his life, Peter was often at odds with another famous theologian at this time uh, that we've already looked at, um, Bernard of Clairvaux. You remember he was the the monk who was behind the Second Crusade, if I remember right. Um, Bernard was very popular. Uh, as a speaker, as a preacher, um, but didn't have nearly the intellectual ability that Peter uh, Abelard had. Um, and so they often debated and, and contradicted each other, but they had a healthy respect for one another. Um, Peter towards Bernard because of his popularity and Bernard towards Peter because of his intellect. Um, so that sums up Peter Abelard. Uh, the next guy we're going to look at is also Peter. His name is Peter Lombard. So I will try to just refer to him as Lombard so we know we're talking about a different Peter. Um, Peter Lombard lived from 1100 to 1160 and studied at both the universities of uh, Bologna and Paris. In fact, he probably, during his time at Paris, studied under Peter Abelard. Uh, he is regarded as the father of systematic theology. Uh, and his most famous work is called The Four Books of Sentences. Um, and by sentences, they really mean opinions. He put together four books that cover different topics um, for church teaching. Um, he grouped them into four categories. The first one was the Trinity and Providence. The second is creation, sin, and grace. Third was the incarnation, salvation, and moral virtues. And the fourth book was the sacraments and eschatology. Uh, and so unlike Abelard with his book Yes and No, um, Peter Lombard actually sought not only to present these, but to examine them and come to conclusions in his book. Um, and so he did this uh, sort of with a very systematic way. He would present the current stance of the church on a particular point of doctrine. Then he would give supporting evidence from the Bible to back up that stance. Then he would look back historically at what the early church or the church through history has taught on this topic, maybe how some of the councils addressed it, some of the heresies related to it. 
Um, and then finally, he would apply logic and reason as well to try to resolve any remaining contradictions in, uh, in this case. Yes? Mostly in the regards to their, their chasing the philosophy of Aristotle, um, but mo these were church-run schools, so they were pretty supported in this. And um, uh, If there was something terribly heretical, I think they probably tried to stifle it. Um, Lombard was also the first theologian to specify uh, seven sacraments for the Catholic Church. They, they still have the same seven today, although they define some of them a little different than Peter Lombard did. Um, these um, are the... Where am I in my notes? Oh, so he defined them. The church didn't actually formally adopt them as their seven sacraments until the Council of Florence in 1439. That's the same council where the Orthodox Church submitted to the Pope and then didn't and all of that. So it was a big council. I'm sure we'll look at it in more detail when we get there. Um, but in it, they, they formally adopted his seven sacraments, which are baptism, communion, confirmation, penance, marriage, ordination, and extreme unction. We're going to talk about these. <laughs> At least briefly. Uh, obviously, as Protestants, we, uh, we hold to two of them. Baptism and communion are the two sacraments we recognize. Uh, and I think we all know what marriage and ordination are. Uh, if you, ordination, becoming a clergy, basically. Um, and so I'll give you a quick definition of the other three of them. Uh, so confirmation is the ceremony that tends to follow baptism. And it is when a believer is formally inducted as a member of the church. Uh, penance involves the confession of sin, uh, the absolution of guilt by the priest, and then uh, some type of a discipline is assigned by the priest um, to match the measure of the sin. Uh, there are some differences between the Catholic Church's understanding of these practices today and what Lombard taught, um, particularly regarding the absolution. Um, for example, Lombard taught that the priest is merely declaring a person's guilt has been removed by their confession and repentance, whereas the Catholic Church today teaches that the priest actually cooperates with God as a, in a joint effort to remove the, the guilt of sin from a confessing believer. So God can't do it by himself. It's also got to involve the priest. Um, Lombard, I think, wasn't terribly wrong in his understanding of it. Um, it's not something we practice today, but I also don't think Lombard's version was heresy. Did I skip extreme unction? I did skip extreme unction. I'm sorry, Jackie. <laughs> extreme unction is the anointing that occurs um, on a person's deathbed to prepare them for death. Uh, generally just some oil and a last chance to confess any sins and make sure they're going up, not down. All right. Um, so Lombard, uh, when he presented these sacraments, was also one of the earliest uh, in the church to teach that these sacraments are the method by which God's grace is applied to the sinner, um, not just a sign of God's grace. But he taught that you, you need the sacrament to happen to receive grace. Um, prior to that, they sort of thought, well, God's grace happens and the sacrament is just a sign of it. Um, I think we we share that uh, in communion as an easy way of seeing it, or baptism, right? It's a sign of our repentance. It's a sign of Christ's death. It's not like 
if we don't do it, you you aren't saved or you aren't forgiven that week or things like that. Um, and so Lombard shifts the Catholic Church kind of the wrong way on that one. Um, and this idea gets developed further then into um, this understanding that if you perform the sacrament correctly, it, it automatically conveys grace. Like that, that part happens as long as the procedure gets done right, even if the priest who performs the sacrament turns out to have been unfit. The church sort of had to adopt that uh, idea because a lot of their priests proved to be very unfit for <laughs> performing the sacrament. Well, uh, many of them were deep in sin, and so the people, you know, if, if the sacrament of marriage had been performed for you and your spouse by a priest who it was later discovered was having an affair, and it was like, well, did the sacrament still count? Are we still married? And so the church had to say, yeah, okay, it doesn't matter what what his condition was. The sacrament was done according to our procedures, so it counts. Um, and then they, they also applied this reasoning to uh, the person receiving the sacrament. Um, so if you weren't in the right frame of mind or, or wholly in, in, in alignment with God's teaching, uh, you were in your sin, but you got baptized anyway with no repentance, you took communion... They said it, it still worked. It still applied God's grace to you. Um, I think that's uh, pretty clearly a direct contradiction to what we read every first Sunday when we go through Paul's teaching in First Corinthians about examining yourselves. I guess I'll save the last one because we are out of time. We'll continue this next week and look at uh, Thomas Aquinas, if you're familiar with his name. He's one of the probably greatest theologians in church history. Um, so, any questions so far on the scholastic theologians? But at the same time, it, it has influenced us a lot. They, they put in the energy to really fleshing out our understanding of a lot of doctrine. Right. Skip ahead. Okay. Nothing really important happened in the 1500s for the Protestant church anyway, right? <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this beautiful morning that we are gathered here together again. And thank you for, uh, as always, seeing your hand at work in history and in the church. And how even when we have situations like this where the, the focus was largely academic, where um, maybe a lot of these didn't have the best motives uh, for your glory, but at the same time, your church was built up through this, and you are, in fact, glorified by it, and you remain faithful to your church. Ask that we would be faithful to you, God, that we would, uh, as we grow in knowledge, that we would love you more, that we would see our sin more and your grace upon us more. Ask that you bless the service today, and uh, Bob, as he presents the message, that uh, you would be exalted through it, and uh, just praise you again for Les and Jackie and uh, what a testimony their marriage is to us at this church and the, the joy that we get to celebrate with them today. So ask all these things in your name. Amen.